It's the most demanding and the most rewarding wing shooting I've had. It's not volume shooting. It's just you're, you might not get but one really good clear shot. And so you're, it brings your focus to a point where you've got to kind of be dialed in. And I, for me, I'm very busy with my business. Work is always going on, family. Here, it just allows me to sort of put all that aside and just say all I'm focused on is visualizing shooting that bird when it rises. Where else can you go to not only find the information on how to train your dog, but the best deals on training equipment as well? Standing Stone Supply has everything you need to create that next versatile champion from DT system electronics down to even emergency med kits to take with you on your hunting trips. If you need some help with your training program, then their step-by-step -step online course might be a great fit for you, making it a convenient one-stop shop for the knowledge as well as the gear to take your training to the next level. Hit up standingstonesupply.com and promo code GDIY will save you 10%. As someone who constantly travels to new locations out of state to hunt, I have to rely on map scouting before I even get in the truck. Onyx Hunt Maps makes it super easy for me to plan out my trips as well as track my success while on the trip. The offline maps along with the tracking feature and ability to add pictures to my waypoints means I can always reference old trips and hunts to better prepare for the next. When planning your next hunt, be sure to use Onyx to put you and your dog in the best situation you can. Use code GDIY20 at checkout to save 20% and know where you stand with Onyx. All right, everybody, welcome back to another edition of GDIY presented by Standing Stone Supply. I'm joined with uh, Brian Robinson, who is a uh, grouse hunting client of Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. He just got to listen to me and Stephen Faust jaw jack for about an hour or so. And as soon as we wrapped it up, he started giving some unique perspectives on why he prefers or or I, I guess I should say at least chooses to come back year after year and chase these crazy birds. Brian, how you doing today? Are you having fun so far? I'm having a great morning. It's a perfect day here in Minnesota. Beautiful, like 60 degrees and just what, what more could you ask for, really? It is it is a gorgeous day. You know, maybe five or ten degrees cooler. You know, the dogs would probably welcome it, but it's hard for it, for it to beat for us anyway. That's right. That's right. No, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking me to sit in for a minute. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, before we get into what you were talking about a second ago, why don't you introduce yourself and, and kind of how long have you been coming to Pine Ridge? What brought you here initially and what keeps you coming back year after year? Well, I'm Brian Robinson. This is my second year here at Pine Ridge. My business is vintage hunting and vintage outdoor supply. And so I'd sort of found out about Jerry and Pine Ridge Grouse Camp through one of the, somebody I met through Instagram. And I checked out Jerry and I had never met him and I'd never been here. And, but I, the referral was really top notch. So I said, I'll, I'll give it a shot. So I didn't really know what to expect. I'd never hunted grouse or woodcock in the United States before. And I was really blown away by the setup they have and the, the sort of the ethos they have and the vibe of the camp here and the quality of the guiding. And I came by myself. I didn't have anybody with me. So it was just me one-on-one -on -one with the guides for three days. And I mean, it was, you can tell when your business model is successful when you start having repeat people every year. And Jerry's got people coming back five, six, seven, eight years more in a row. So that's just a testament really to the success of the model he has and not just the business model, but also him and his family's kind of personal spin on how they approach what they do. And they kind of create this big, you're part of the family now when you come in, you're coming back to their facility every year. Yeah. Repeat business and word of mouth, kind of like somebody clued you in on Instagram 
prior to somebody mentioning it to you on Instagram, did you even have a desire or curiosity into rough grouse hunting? Did you even know what it was before that? You know, kind of walk me through the mindset of not only somebody telling you about it, but you being like, yeah, I want to do that. Well, I was familiar with grouse shooting in the butts in Scotland, and that was something that I've always wanted to do, but I'd never had an opportunity to do that in the UK. And I moved to Sioux Falls in January a year ago. It'll be two years this coming January from Atlanta. And so, I mean, just when you move this part of the country, the Midwest, it opens up a whole new world of potential wild bird shooting opportunities that we just don't have in the Southeast. And due to the density and, you know, just the habitat issues. So having the opportunity to shoot grouse, I mean, I was familiar with the species. I had one of these kind of wood carved pictures from the 40s that my mom and dad had on the wall since I was a kid of rough grouse and but I'd never seen one and I had never shot one until I showed up last year and did both of those so (laughs) it it was just you know I really just wanted to try it out and see what it was all about and somebody who's obviously kind of plugged into as you said vintage hunting gear and an ode to to times past and and history and what kind of brought the hunting culture along or at least stepping stones how much did it mean to you to actually come up here and experience rough grouse as you said you grew up with one kind of carved into wood on your wall growing up and then actually getting to experience it for what it is in real life was there kind of a, a cool little crossover for you in that regard it was interesting i had no idea what it was about really and when i came out i had no idea the physical requirement of when you hunt quail and you do driven shoots in the uk and you do you know you do pheasants in south dakota the level of physical exertion for grouse is a whole nother thing. So that's that's something I wasn't prepared for. You know, I wear a lot of vintage gear when I hunt because I I want to I want to photograph it and also want to see what it actually feels like. And so last year, I wore a pair of 1970s boots that I quickly got waterlogged and I was walking around with two concrete blocks <laughs> on my feet. I mean, that's just not what they were designed to do. And I wasn't prepared for the you know walking across beaver dams and. The bogs I, yeah, I, and yeah all I wasn't that. aware of the fallen log bogs and Stephen walked me through the swamps and, you know, I'm falling over logs and I got my feet in the water and I mean, it wasn't cold. It was 70 degrees, but, you know, I learned a lot about what works and what doesn't. So this year when I came, I ditched the vintage shoes and brought the real modern stuff so that I was going to be a little bit more protected. But that was really the biggest understanding kind of what the hunters of you know, in the 70s and, and before what it felt like to be out in the woods and those big wool-rich plaid jackets and, you know, the old Mackinaws and, you know, the old handmade boots and the just the heavy wool coats because they didn't have all the technical stuff we have now. What, what did it feel like? And that's just something I wanted to sort of experience. So coming here, it get, I'm shooting in a pair of 1930s duck canvas pants to short sort of breeks today and you know doing that so i'm sort of feeling what these feel like and uh just to get a sense of what it's like to walk around in that kind of not a costume but actually physically use those clothes so it's a it's an interesting experience to use it here where it's so physical and it's so demanding it's interesting I, i've that's kind of a, a point of discussion that i've had with some a few guys here recently over the past month or two is toying around with the idea of trying or attempting a hunt with 
gear from a specific era, you know, even go back to the black powder shotguns, if you will, you know, you take away all the electronics, there's no onyx, there's no Garmin tracking collars, you're operating with maybe a bell on the dog and, and that's it. It, it. I think it would be really interesting. I've had a couple buddies be like, I have no desire to try that. And then I've had a couple buddies thinking that that would be cool to try it out for one day, at least make you, make you appreciate the level of technology and improvement in gear, such as boots that, that you were alluding to just a minute ago. Yeah, I mean, I, 90, 95% of hunting doesn't, it's just like I consider like 95% of camping. It doesn't require technical gear. You know, like you don't need to have a Yeti to go to the, go picnic with your family in the park during the summer. But if you're going to go on a two-week Caribbean fishing trip, or you're going to go do a big expedition out to, you know, climbing a mountain, I'd sure want to be able to keep my food cold for two weeks that's just survival that's basic smarts the same thing if you're like really out there humping it in the mountains and extreme environments you know trying to shoot you know bighorn sheep and that kind of stuff there's no substitute for modern stuff but you know for what most people do on a daily basis wool jackets you know that's wool's great right it keeps you warm when it's wet it it's comfortable it it's insulating you can get by with a wool jacket you know duck cotton you know, canvas, perfect stuff, especially if you wax it. I mean, it's the stuff performs great and it performs so well for so long. I think a lot of the technology, especially after the Vietnam War, really got ramped up by the military. So a lot of guys are coming out of the military with military experience and, and wanting that kind of military gear performance. And then sort of that's sort of um, been, you know, there's the whole, you know, the black gun culture in the United States with, you know, and none it's it's good for people i don't really i don't have any issue with it it's just a different approach to, to to hunting or the technical aspects i'm an old gun guy i'm a vintage gun guy i mean i hunt with a remington 1100 an 870 wingmaster an a5 i mean that's what i'm yeah I'm a, they call it the farmer gun collection every <laughs> farmer has these guns because they do everything right and that's what i enjoy i kind of gravitated out of that a little bit with my over and unders and trying to you know move into the 21st century with my gun technology so yeah it's just fun to sort of play in these areas and see how things work and how it feels and you know birds don't care if you wear camo or not right the turkeys probably do you know I would, I would definitely gear up for turkeys but you know grouse don't care what you have on quail don't either i mean and it's good, I guess, to have Blaze because you don't want to get shot. So <laughs> I'm not a fan of Blaze. I don't, I don't particularly like like the look of it. But you know, for safety, especially for people who are running commercial operations and liability purposes, of course, they got to keep everything right. as safe as possible. So you know, so co- coming into your first time last year, coming to Pine Ridge is, you know, you wanted to check out rough grouse. Somebody recommended it to you, but it sounded like you had some experience even overseas as far as wing shooting is concerned, how much experience did you bring into your first time coming into Pine Ridge? Well, I've been hunting since I was a child. I I mean, my my dad was a hunter, my uncles were hunters, and I grew up in, I came of sort of, of hunting age, living in Albany, Georgia, middle school and high school. I hunted quail all the time down there. And then it sort of, I sort of got out of it when I got married and I had my kids and then we moved to Africa and I was in Pretoria and I started picking up wing shooting again. And then, I mean, I got really heavy into it when I was in Africa again, shooting guinea fowl and Franklin and all the waterfowl. And that was a great experience. I've had a chance to go to the UK twice and shoot driven pheasants and partridge in the UK. And 
you know, now I'm in South Dakota and I mean, I've got all these opportunities to shoot, you know, pheasants or come here. So there's, you know, I've, I brought a lot of experience. It's just, this was one type of species I had never pursued before. Right. What about bird dogs? When you're over in Africa or the UK, you know, talk to me about your experience in bird dogs before coming here. And then I want to get into your takeaways with rough grouse because you kind of already touched on a little bit of the uniqueness of it. But what about bird dog experience? I mean, I grew up around bird dogs. My family raised them. I was just, we moved a lot. And I, and when I've gotten to my overseas lifestyle, you just can't have dogs like that. So, but in uh, South Africa, guys, uh, German short-haired pointers are really a, one of the bigger breeds over there. And they're small, so they can get in and out of the brush and move around pretty good. So GSPs are big over there. And then, you know, depending in the UK for driven, it's mostly pickup. They're picking, dogs are picking up. So you got lots of retrievers, big retrievers over there doing that. So that was sort of the experience with dogs. When we were growing up in South Georgia, we would just take whatever mutt dog you could take. I mean, they'd perform pretty well, you know. I mean, they were not of a, of a pure, you know, line, but they were, they got the job done. They'd go so kick up a covey for they, you. Sure they would, you know. If you, I mean, they were wild birds. I mean, I was, this was in the, what, like 84, 85, 86, I graduated from high school so we were shooting wild birds just you know three guys from high school we would take our guns to school on a friday <laughs> leave them in our trunk when the bell rang we'd head out and go out to leslie georgia which was just south of americas and we would go hunt on this connected family farms a friend of ours and we would spend the night out there and shoot saturday all day and then come home and it's all wild birds and you know that kind of thing is just it's gone with the wind really you know so coming up here up north where you're back into that kind of culture where you can shoot wild birds pretty much whenever you want to is, it's quite a, it spoils you. I tell everybody bird country, it, it just has a different feel. I mean, obviously doing what I do with the dogs and, and traveling the country, it's just, just having them on the landscape. It, it's just a different vibe than the areas to where we're probably unfortunately more accustomed to nowadays to where it's just like, okay, white-tailed deer you know, maybe some black bear, big game opportunities, you know, maybe throwing the turkey. But besides that, it's just like, you know, you don't, you're not hearing the Bob Whites whistling on the landscape. You're not flushing the rough grouse accidentally just walking through the woods. It's just, you know, different regions of the country are really kind of struggling to even remember what it was like to have wild bird populations, unfortunately. And the density out here is so much lower. I mean, yeah, I lived in Atlanta and we had what, 8 million people in the metro area. In Sioux Falls, there's 800,000 people in the whole state. I mean, it's just the density is just goes way down. So the, you know, the pressure on the on the hunting, you can you can hunt all day and never see another person. Yeah, especially if you miss that first flush of the season when all the people come in from outside and the weather starts to get a little bit colder. You know, around the first of December, and then you know, then you just got the whole place yourself. It's really really nice. So you decide that you want to take a poke at rough grouse hunting. You get up here, you you have your vintage boots. We we already touched on that to where they just became bricks and waterlogged almost immediately. What were some of your first impressions thinking back on it last year? Do, were you were you in the middle of a thicket going, what the crap did I just get myself into? Or were you kind of loving it and embracing the suck as it kind of unfolded? Well, I think what I was, I was telling Stephen earlier today, I think a lot of it has to do with your, your mental approach. I had no idea what I was getting into. So I was pretty, I was tired and miserable and we walked ourselves to death. You know, you're tired and miserable until you flush a bird, then all of a sudden it all goes right. away, right? And then all of a sudden you've got all this energy and you shoot, <laughs> and you shoot a bird and you're like, wow, that was amazing. And then you go back 
10 minutes later and you're slogging it out again. So that was, it was more of a mental, it was physically exhausting, but it was a mental thing. So this year I'm hunting and it's a totally different experience because I had, I have my head around what I need to do. Like, you know, when you first show up and you're shooting rough grouse and you, you've not done this before, the woods are so thick and dense that you're looking at your feet to make sure you don't fall. Well, if you start looking at your feet all the time, you're never going to shoot a bird because the birds are going to flush. By the time you get yourself oriented, find the bird and, and take a shot at it, it's gone. So the idea that you have to start getting your balance right, you need to start focusing outward towards the horizon and keep your eyes up and your gun ready at all times. If you really, if you really want to be have a higher chance of success, that was something I really had to learn about. You know, and then I think my own personal experience is when I'm in the morning, when I'm super sharp and I'm rested, I'm actually not as good a shot because I'm almost kind of keyed up. I'm kind of keen on, on it. Yeah. And then once I start to burn off that energy and it starts to get to that normal level, then I find that my performance shooting goes way up. So this morning I missed like two birds I should have shot. And then this afternoon I had two shot, two birds to shoot at and I got them both. So it's just that. You know, it's the law of averages, of course, but I just think that, you know, it's physically demanding. I mean, it's, it's a difficult terrain. It's, it, you're going to only going to have as much success as you're willing to walk. You got to get a mile into the woods before you start really getting <laughs> yeah, into the birds. Right. And, you know, Stephen and I hunted the first day I ever hunted grouse last year, we jumped, we had 41 flushes and that wasn't, that was grouse, woodcock and a few snipe. But I mean, that's a lot of birds, but we walked a long way through some pretty rough stuff so you know you just in grouse you get you're going to get what you work for and they're going to make you work and when you shoot one you really earned it you're going to be in a calorie deficit if you're <laughs> if you're planning on surviving on the calories from grouse you will you will starve to death within about two weeks right yeah if you go into the north woods and your wife's looking at you on the way out the door and saying you aren't taking enough food and you're saying like i'm just going to eat what i kill you're going to go hungry you're going to starve on grouse so you know you'll need to supplement with something <laughs> else so yeah that's that's how i sort it but it was you know, now coming my second year, I mean, I'm just, I'm hooked. It's the best hunting. It's the most demanding and the most rewarding wing shooting I've had. It's not volume shooting. It's just, you're, you might not get, but one really good clear shot. And so you're, it brings your focus to a point where you've got to kind of be dialed in. And I, for me, I'm very busy with my business. Work is always going on, family here it just allows me to sort of put all that aside and just say all i'm focused on is visualizing shooting that bird when it rises and i actually put it in my mind where i see the bird fold and i I see it fold i don't see myself miss i see myself successful and it helps me push all that other stuff out and it really it makes me feel energized and it gives me a sort of clean it cleans my mind moving forward once i get back to the house yeah yeah you have that clarity you're not I've said the same thing to where, you know, each type of hunting has its own different characteristics and what it has to offer. And you can become complacent in other types of wing shooting. You know, you go out on the prairie, maybe things get a little slow. You don't run into some sharp tails or or whatever you're chasing out there. And and it's a little more open. You can kind of almost forget that you're out there hunting, if that makes sense. Meanwhile, out here, it's kind of like you're reminded every step because if you're not paying attention, then you're just going to get hit in the face with a branch. And uh, to your point, you can't be looking at the ground. You can't be looking, you know, just admiring the plant over there because you might... That rough grouse is only going to give you a, a, a certain window of opportunity. And if you're not prepared for it or ready, you know, you're just going to miss it. 
all, all together. Yeah. And I think Stephen was saying earlier today, like new people that show up, half of them are going to be addicted to it for the rest of their <laughs> lives. And the other half are never going to come back because you've really got to have, like you said, not, all, I mean, like shooting waterfowl is, is for some people, it's not for others. Shooting quail is for some people, not for others. Shooting, doing rough grouse, if you pursue it regularly, it's, it might not, you know, if you're thinking about it, it might not be for you forever. Cause it's just, you've got to be sort of, you got to, if you want to do it and enjoy it and be safe and not break your ankle and try to be successful in shooting the birds, you've really got to be paying attention and it requires that kind of focus. So, you know, if you want to do like in the UK, you know, they, you're standing there, they blow the whistle and all of a sudden 300 birds just kind of come over and you can pick the one you want and you got somebody loading your gun and you're standing in one spot. I mean, that's, I enjoy that a lot. That's, but that's just, it's, it's very, you're, you're rooted to a stand to one and here you're all over the place. <laughs> right. Well, talk, talk to me about, again, going back to your first hunt up here, your first experience where the dogs kind of fell into it for you because all the all the reasons you just described the terrain the physical requirements maybe you know the 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 vintage boots kind of playing a part into it you know was it hard for you to kind of get in the flow and how the dogs were working and how you should handle or approach a dog on point I think a lot of that had to do with the guide. Stephen was the first guide I ever had out here. So he was very, he's, he has not, he does not, he's not shy about directing his clients, which I think is important. And, I, and I'm not shy about taking direction. So, cause I mean, I'm, he's the professional. He knows what he's doing. I don't know what I'm doing. So just tell me where I need to go. So, you know, the dogs are on point, you know, walk up there, Brian, and flush the bird. They're, the bird's not going to just pop out of the ground. So you got to get there and work it, you know? And so that was having a, the guide really does a lot towards, that introduction to understand what you're supposed to be doing and where you're supposed to be positioned. I'd never hunted over Gordon's before, Gordon Setters before. Their performance was unbelievable and their stamina was incredible. I mean, that was just, I had never, they just went and went and went and went and went. I mean, it was hot. It was about 70 degrees last year and we did that for the first day. And so it was stamina and their performance, they were on the birds like nobody's business. And, uh, you know, a lot of that has to do with their training and, and, uh, how much they hunt, which is every day. They were just, by the time I got here, they were just ripping their muscles are just ripping. <laughs> I mean, they're great, great conditioned animals, but, um, yeah, the dogs were just spectacular. I, I couldn't, I was actually thinking about getting a Gordon, but then I travel so much. I, I don't think I could work it like I wanted to. So I, I sort of thought about some other opportunities, but yeah, was, I was extremely impressed and, you know, and every guide here has a bias towards their own breed, right? Absolutely. So you hear everybody, you know, no, this is the best <laughs> dog. No, that, those dogs are awful. You shouldn't, you can't hunt in Minnesota with a German dog, blah, blah. You know, it's everybody, it's almost like, you know, they've got their little tribes and they're all very, uh, Oh, if you like his Gordons, wait till you see my English setters or my short hairs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, there's that, everybody's very protective about And, you know, you meet the clients and here and the clients are like, I only have this one breed or I only have this one breed. Well, I mean, it's funny because certain breeds just kind of bond with certain people's characters, you know, and so we're all different. We all like different things, different dogs, attitudes, you know, you find your way towards the ones that fit with you as a human being and them as a canine and you learn to work together and it just sort of happens that way. And we're sort of led to that, who our partner is going to be. And they're, the dogs are your partner in the field. I mean, they're, they get it done, but if you hunt without a dog, it's a lot harder. And your chances of success. Uh, have are you tried much it without a dog since and, being uh, up here? 
I've walked just kind of fun, just for exercise. And, you know, you're never going to get, there's too much land to cover. I mean, that's just, it's just too much territory, you know, just, just walking around by yourself. I mean, it's fun to do. I mean, it's fun to put a gun on your shoulder and walk around, but your chances of success are pretty much guaranteed to be yeah. zero. Well, I love speaking to somebody such as yourself who's, you know, you have some experience outside of this particular type of hunting, but even just breaking in and and still kind of experiencing it very early on in your rough grouse hunting career, it's kind of like you're on that that lower rung of the ladder, if you will, to where somebody very first starting out, you have perspective and, and can at least maybe remember some of the tips or pieces of advice that maybe somebody who's been doing it for 5, 10, 15 plus years kind of even forgets that it was a question in their head, if that makes sense. So think back on it last year, even maybe this time around, somebody wants to come up here and try rough grouse hunting for the first time. What's your biggest piece of advice to give them? My biggest piece of advice is start walking in your neighborhood. Get your your legs strong because that's, I mean, you don't have to be an athlete. You don't have to run or anything like that, but you do need to be able to walk a couple miles a day. You know, that's the big thing. You can hunt off off some of the roads and not get too deep in and you can flush a few birds. But if you want to really get into it, you need to be in pretty good shape. And, you know, you just have to be, you just have to be focused on you just can't be in the woods and just kind of dialed out. I mean, it's just not the chances. I, the two things I did last year when I first started that were, that were, uh, that I had to correct were I was looking at my feet cause I was afraid of falling down and I didn't have my gun properly positioned for the birds and they flush. Cause I didn't have any real idea of how quick it was going to be. So, I mean, the birds are coming out of the trees and out of the ground and I'm just like, <laughs> you know, that's it. You know, I mean, it's just like pop flush and then you just just pop it's it's right there you've got literally one second to make up your mind and that requires a whole different kinds of when you're shooting pheasant driven pheasants you can see the bird coming from 100 yards away i mean it's almost harder to hit because it's you (laughs) You you know you have so much time to prepare you're going to miss but that you know staying focused and really being kind of keen you know as this is what I'm here to do. And this is, and not me, not take it, get, you have to enjoy it. It's not work, but you know, just to kind of realize if you're going to be successful and you want to get a grouse, one, one a day is a good number. If you want to get a grouse, you've really got to stay focused because otherwise your chances are going to be pretty slim. Yeah. I think that that is a very good point to where a lot of people, when they, they're traveling bird hunters, they start looking at what's the limit on this bird? What's the limit on this bird? If you're going to come walk and even behind dogs and have any kind of requirement for the dog to handle birds a certain way, you're not looking at a limit. You know, it, some people scrape one out from time to time, and those are the magical days that they're going to be telling the story till the day they die. But you come away with one, maybe two birds. That's a successful day in the rough grouse. Yeah, woods. absolutely. You know, the woodcock, I enjoy shooting the woodcock. They're they're a beautiful bird and they're fun. Of course, the, the grouse sort of has a, is a little higher in the rung. Just, I mean, for whatever reason. But, you know, yeah, they're, because you have to work, man. It's work and they're hard to see. You know, they pop out at your feet. They fly all over the place. They're, they, they're like little rockets and it's a whole different, it's a whole nother level. I mean, if you're used to shooting pen raised quail, you are in for a whole other experience when <laughs> right. you shoot rough grouse, wild rough grouse. It's I think somebody mentioned Stephen last year. So where when are you gonna where'd you guys go out and put out the birds? Or I mean we didn't put out the birds. Those birds, <laughs> those birds are here. You know that's we didn't put anything out. I don't know where they are. We're gonna find them together, right? And 
yeah, it's it's a real challenge. So when you are successful, which I have not been successful so far this morning, I had one shot. I think I probably had a good chance at. I have not been successful today. There was when I hunted last year. I hunted three days. I shot. I think I shot two grouse the first day, one the second day, and I got none on the third. So it's like two on the first day for your first hunt, man. That's yeah, but a... I was just boiling. I was like on fire, <laughs> you know, and, and Stephen put us on 41 opportunities. So out of 41 opportunities, I probably had 10 shots that I could take. Now the 10 shots I took, I got two. So that's, that's your average, right? That, that, that's a pretty good shooting average. You get one out of 10 or so that's, that you even have a shot at. You're just doing really good. So I think they probably were softballs. I probably, you know, that, that was the one that just basically I saw it and it flushed and it went like straight up and out. So I could actually had a pattern on it that I could follow for more than a second and a half. So did you shoot a rough grouse before shooting a woodcock? I think so. Yeah. Not a whole lot of people can say that. Yeah. I shot the rough grouse first. That was the first bird I killed out here was a rough grouse. And that was rough grouse. That was the morning of, yeah, it was, toward the, it was a little bit later in October than it is now. But yeah, that was it. But I didn't think it was easy because I worked for it. It wasn't like, oh, this is nothing. You know? But because you worked for it and because it was challenging and because your boots were waterlogged and you're walking on concrete, so to speak, it probably meant even that much more when you're holding the bird in your hand. Do you remember what was going through your head when you were holding that first bird to where it's just like, this was worth it? Or were you like, all of that for this? I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if some people have cr have cried when they had that first bird in their hand because, you know, they're tired, their foot sore, you know, they've been disappointed all day. And no, it's, it's a moving, it's, a, it's, you're, you know, you have certain experiences in your hunting life that you never forget. You'll never forget your first rough grouse. Never. I mean, it's just, you cannot forget it. I mean, you might forget the flush, but you'll remember holding that bird in your hands because it's not easy to do. And not a lot of people come up here and hunt for three days and don't get any. And it's just because that combination of factors doesn't work out for them. That happens to people even with high caliber dogs and just, you know, maybe the conditions are off. Maybe you just have poor shooting. Maybe you just don't get the shot window. I mean, you know, we talk about it all the time. You can do everything perfect. And if that bird just flies left when you're hoping it goes right, you're going home and, and buying some chicken like we were talking about at the start of all this. But if you're if you work hard. If you work really hard and you've got a guide who's willing to work you hard, then you've got, at least you'll have a reasonable opportunity versus, you know, if you only get, if you only flush one bird, you got one shot, right? Or if you flush 10 birds, at least you've got probably at least a 20% window of probability. You've got a chance, you know? And so that's about what it is. You've got to give yourself, you got to work to get the chances and the more chances you get, the more percentage success you're going to have. So, you know, it's just this numbers game, but you got to know how to shoot. You better be on the clays before you come out and get yourself dialed in a little bit. Coming out rusty here is not probably the best thing to do and know your gun, pick the gun you're best shooting. You know, people come out with fancy guns all the time. They don't know how to use. Shoot. If you've got a Winchester 101 that you've been shooting since you were 15 years old, I suggest you put it in the truck because that's going to be the gun you're probably going to have the higher percentage chance of being successful with because you just, it's the one that works, right? The one that works is the one that you use. And it's just a lot of fun. I, you know, the people who you meet here and the experience with the guides and it's like a, it's, it is like a family. So it's, the guides come back every year. That's a testament too, right? They come back because they, they're asked back and they come back because they want to be here. Well, you don't have to mention any names or anything. You know, Stephen will act like he's not over here listening to this or whatever. But in terms of guides, in your opinion, what's something that you appreciate in, in a good caliber guide? And may, is there something that stands out to you that, you know, maybe if a guide's listening to this, 
might be able to improve on something? Well, a guide has got to be able to read their client. I mean, the first thing about a guide is number one priority is safety. So a guide's got to be able to, you know, a guide's got to be able to maintain the, the required safety level. So the guide has to have a certain amount of strictness in the field and be able to emphasize and reemphasize gun safety when they're in the woods and not get mushy on that because they're afraid they're going to offend the client. The client's being unsafe. The guy has to say something about it. You have to have a guide who has the confidence to direct the client in, in maintaining safety. And then you've also got to have a guide that can read the client's ability and give them the best chances they have based on their physical limitations, their endurance, and, you know, what their level of competency is with a firearm. I mean, you know, this is something that's very difficult for experienced hunters to come out here as a relatively new hunter and try to do rough grouse. That's a, that's a pretty tall order. So giving sort of reading, being able to read the client, that's always, that is the number one level of, of, a, of a good guide is being able to read the client, understand what they're about, and then present them with as great a day as possible based on their level of ability their attitude not all clients are easy to work with and you got to deliver a good day for everybody whether they're pleasant or not you yeah. know and that's a hard thing for people to do and and be safe too so it's a it's a hard it's a hard act it's a hard balancing act for guides i i really look up to them because they get they just get mixed nuts it's whoever shows up right right they don't get to pick their clients, so they got to take whoever shows up. And some people are easy, and some people are not so easy. So, and some people get mad because they haven't shot a bird all day. And you got to kind of continue to say, "This is what it's about. This is what you're doing. Great. You're going to get there. Just keep we're, we're keep putting keep, opportunities keep in front working. of you. You know, you're going to get there. You're going to keep there. You're going to just keep pushing it. You're going to get there. You're going to get there, and just keep being encouraging. Because you know, if somebody's missed five or six times, it's natural to get discouraged. And oh, say, yeah. oh man, I'm never going to do this. This is just awful. No, just Keep Stay shooting. focused. If you're not putting lead in the air, you're never going to hit a bird. Yeah. So just you know, let it rip. Spray and pray. Yeah. You know, just let it rip and and be safe. And that's really what it, you know, bring everybody back safe at the end of the day and and as happy as they can be. Well, outside of the hunting and the dogs, what comes to mind first that makes up a good quality grouse camp? Uh, you know, is it is it the food? Is it the campfire? Is it the drinks? You know, what what stands out to you in terms of what what makes sitting around camp special for you? Yes, the host the host sets the tone for the whole thing. I mean, it's it's about that. They're the parent, they're the dad, they're the owner, they're the person who kind of keeps a, a read on what's going on and the temperature of the clients and who's who's hot and who's not, and <laughs> you know, and being able to massage that and you know and set certain people with other people at dinner so that you know you've kind of got compatibility. But it's you know it's not about having five-star posh facilities. It's not having, you know, Michelin dining. It's about the vibe and it's the people, the staff and the, and the staff, and then they're led by the person who runs the place. And that's how that, that's sort of the ethos and the vibe that that's created that pulls people in who've never been there before. I mean, you don't know anybody, you're, you know, especially if you're hunting by yourself, you don't, you've never, you don't know anybody. And it's like, you know, it's intimidating. So how do you feel like coming into that environment and then be made to feel welcome, no matter who you are, what your background is, if you're a man, woman, person of color, whatever, you're, you belong at the table. And that's, that's something that in hunting, and, you know, 
I've been to places where I'm not a member or I haven't shown up and I feel like I'm kind of like, well, who's this guy and what's he doing here? You know, and that's not the vibe we want to promote in hunting. We want to make sure people feel included and welcome no matter their client, they're paying, they, they're, they need to be made to feel at home like everybody else. And, uh, these guys here at Pine Ridge with Jerry and his family and his, his staff, they're really, they're dialed in on that big time oh yeah i mean you want to talk about the the family vibe you know we're sitting there at the bar talking to jerry last night while his daughter was helping bring food out then his wife brings the grandson out and you know you're all just sitting around there and and they operate it as a family and i think all of the things that you just mentioned the food and the amenities and everything it's all building blocks that build up to something really special and and what you get in pine ridge and that's why somebody randomly suggested them to you on Instagram. Yep. And when you run into them at other events, like at Pheasants Forever, Pheasants Fest or whatever, when you run into them, they're just as welcoming and friendly to you there as they are here. So it's not like, you know, they don't say hi to you when they see you, you know, out, out somewhere. Yeah. Well, what about the, as we wrap this up, the shot glass, the commemorative shot glass with the date on your first grouse, where is that at? Do you have the tail yeah, fan to go with it's it? It's in my office. The, the shot glass is in my office. You know, I don't drink, so they, they filled it. I think it was full of Coke. It's symbolic. It's symbolic of the achievement. And I think that being recognized, that's why it's difficult, you know, and, and to be able to be able to recognize that singular achievement in the hunting field with other people who are going through it with you at the same time and they're all trying to strive to the same thing is a very powerful and very special it's not cheesy it's i mean the europeans tradition about you know the way they treat their the quarry when they're killed and it, it, they understand you know they have like the bow of the fur and all this kind of stuff it's very it's it recognizes an achievement of the hunter and it also recognizes a respect for the quarry too and i think that's really it's super important about with what we do here and i think that's it, it's it's kind of moving so you know you see a young person or a, an old person doesn't matter who's got their first grouse i mean that's a major that's a you've basically graduated to a whole other level in the hunting world i mean you've done something that a lot of people can't do and a lot of people wish they could do so it's a big deal absolutely Brian, I appreciate you kind of taking the time and, and sharing your thoughts and experiences coming to camp and just overall first rough grouse hunting experiences. Why don't you, you at the start of this, you mentioned that you do the, the vintage clothing and, and gear and stuff. Why don't you tell everybody what it is that you actually do, the name of the company, where they can find you, and just everything that you can offer through that. Sure. My business is C. Woodcock. C as in Charlie Woodcock, like the bird, and A-N-D-C-O, cwoodcockandco.com. I sell a lot of vintage hunting gear, American stuff, European stuff, like lots of Woolrich, lots of old Abercrombie and Fitch. I sell some Russell Boots, new stuff. And moving towards 2024, I'm going to really start looking at putting out a lot of retro vintage new product. And it's going to be really kind of fun. I'm looking at different ideas for that. So moving the whole business model, but it's all online. It's out of Sioux Falls. I really, it's, it's a passion. I've been hunting and doing, collecting this stuff my entire life. So it's just an opportunity to, I use my business as a way to encourage people to get out in the field and to experience adventure and, and realize you don't have to go on safari in Africa. You don't have to go deep sea fishing, you know, on the Pilar with Ernest Hemingway, but you can have, you can have adventure just walking outside your door. So what can, how can my gear inspire that 
spirit in people. And that's really what it's, it's, it's sort of that old Bert Avedon, Willis and Geiger tradition of, you know, that adventure is just right there and you can experience it some type of adventure, ju- adventure just by, you know, wearing the gear and, and learning about it and understanding where it comes from and all those traditions. Yeah, just stepping into their feet, so to speak, when you put on those pair of boots and seeing how waterlogged those boots are and and those guys that suffered through it. <laughs> I mean, there was that big blizzard that came through, what, I can't remember when it was in the middle of the 20th century, and it, like, killed, like, a, you know. A bunch of duck hunters. Yeah, 40, 50 people died, you know, and it's just that kind of thing. It's just fast. It's, that's tragic, but it's also very interesting to learn about those kinds of things and yeah. what happened and why and, you know, say, well, you know, some of the things we always have to be aware of our environment too when we're out so just all these different things that have happened in the hunting world it's just really really interesting and i think you mentioned earlier this will be the last thing before we wrap it up but uh you're also involved in a podcast as well yeah i'm a guest contributor to the break in the action podcast with ryan dowdy ryan does a regular podcast on classic over and under and side by side shotguns so I'm working with Ryan to sort of broaden the scope a little bit into gear and to destinations. So we're working on that. I did a tour of the, the Beretta facility in Italy and also the Chapuis facility in France. And we're going to be doing some podcast with those guys and bringing that information that I brought from overseas in. So, yeah, it's really exciting. Well, I mean, anybody listening to this, and I, I think... I'm suspecting that there's a few people that are a a few gear junkies and and gun nerds listening to this. So anybody interested in your vintage vintage gear company, the SeaWoodcockandCo.com and Breaking the Action podcast, check the show notes. I'll have the links in there. And Brian, again, uh, I enjoyed sharing the field this morning and appreciate you coming on and just sharing some of your thoughts on it. And uh, I think Stephen's tapping his watch and foot over here saying it's yeah, time, it's to, time go. to go after the birds that's right <laughs> get it on yes sir why does it usually form or function when it comes to shotguns you either hear about the looks or craftsmanship of this shotgun while that shotgun over there in the corner hasn't been cleaned in two seasons but supposedly fits and shoots like a dream why can't it be both this is what upland gun company does they take your own personal measurements and will construct the very shotgun that should handle like a dream while getting you the looks and custom features that only you can decide on whether it's a side by side or over under english stock or full pistol grip custom engraving such as your dog's portrait even down to selecting the wood grain on your stock head on over to uplandguncompany.com and build the dream gun that you would carry in the field with your dog for many seasons all right everybody hope you enjoyed that quick episode with brian robinson this was presented by standing stone supply onyx hunt dt systems upland gun company and final rise I thought it'd be kind of interesting to get another perspective from somebody that isn't, you know, just the the guide or the, even a dog owner or handler. I thought it was pretty interesting in the fact that when Stephen and I kind of wrapped up our conversation and episode that you heard a few days ago, Brian was at the tailgate. Obviously, we we're kind of at lunch break throughout the hunt. As soon as we wrapped up, he started throwing in his thought process and adding on to why he, you know, adding his perspective to some of the things that Stephen and I discussed throughout our episode. And I thought it'd be fun to get his take on a recording because it just goes to show that perspectives matter. You know, not everybody gets into this world and has the same goals or objectives or interests. They all vary from person to person. 
And then you start adding in the fact that not everybody even owns a dog. Not everybody's in it to hunt the same species or even the same, you know, how you hunt the same species. Everything is different. And this is why when people talk about trying to make a difference or grow the sport, so to speak, or, you know, the fact that hunter numbers are down and we have to recruit new people. Well, I don't think enough people really kind of give the individual's perspective that they're taking out there on a hunt enough attention. It's kind of a tough subject to talk about, but at the end of the day, guides, you know, your, your thoughts or feelings as it comes to guides. And there, there is a difference between public land and actual wild bird hunting guides and preserve guides, but I kind of group them all in the same action when it comes to the fact that they are the first impression for a lot of people in their first experience into the upland hunting, whether that is wild birds or whether that is preserved birds, it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, you have brand new people coming out there and very often that guide is the first line, that first, first teacher, if you will, that shows people how they do things. And clients will very often carry on what they see or learn on that individual hunt, you know, from gun safety to etiquette on how to interact with other hunters, how to interact with a dog on the ground and what birds to shoot, what what matters, what doesn't matter. If you don't believe me, I mean, just go through all of the profile episodes I've done for four plus years and how many of those episodes people talk about their first impressions came from, you know, a specialty hunt or a guided hunt and they make their decisions on the dog breed that they eventually get because the first dog that they saw doing it happened to be a German shorthair when they went and paid for a preserve hunt and the guide had German shorthairs, right? Like it very often the first impressions that we make with people is the strongest one that sticks with them. So if that's the case with dog breeds, I would argue that's the case with how we interact and handle our dogs, how we handle our self-imposed restrictions while hunting, our discipline, all of that stuff. And so the other day we got the perspective of the guide, Stephen Faust. And then when Brian started adding his two cents and some additional color after the fact, I thought it'd be fun to just hit record and, and get that as an episode for you guys real quick, because obviously, as you guys heard, Brian, you know, he doesn't have a, a hunting dog that actually hunts in the field with him, but he's coming at it from a different perspective. It's almost like the challenge and the journey and adventure matters to him more so than anything. And so when we're trying to recruit new people and I don't know, influence people in the quote-unquote correct way in the uplands, or at least what we perceive to be the correct way, their individual goals and why they do it matter. And so, yeah, take take it for whatever it's worth. Hopefully you got something valuable out of this conversation with him. And yeah, you know, hopefully it was something different for you guys. But with that being said, not going to keep you guys too much longer. If you have anything to contribute to the show, such as topic ideas, episode suggestions, guest suggestions, questions, feedback, whatever, please take a moment to shoot us some some of your thoughts to gundogyourself at gmail.com or there's a email submittal page on our website at gundogyourself.com. And if you want extended feedback, if you really, you know, I, I'm kind of hitting that point to where I try 
and answer everybody I can on social media and emails and stuff like that. And eventually I get to everybody. But sometimes the questions and people that that really need help or at least looking for a little bit of guidance, if it falls within a topic that I'm comfortable steering somebody one way or the other on, it's getting to where, you know, a lot of those questions and topics really require a lot more feedback and a lot more context. And so you have to kind of get on a phone call with them. And so for, for stuff like that, I'm trying to steer everybody towards Patreon because it's a lot easier for me to kind of filter out uh, the people that, you know, are just writing in and asking for help, which I'm always happy to help if I can. But the people that first come first serve is always going to be the Patreon patrons because they're actually contributing and supporting the podcast more so than just hitting play and download. It really, you know, without our Patreon patrons, we would not have this show. And so whenever there's a choice between fielding, you know, social media messages or emails and Patreon messages, I'm always going to go with the Patreon patrons first. So if that's of any value to you guys and you want to, you know, kind of have me at your disposal for whatever that's worth. I've been in the classroom for four or five years listening to some of these guys that really know better than me. And and so, you know, depending on the, the question or topic, I, I'm not afraid to say I don't know something, but at the very same time, I very rarely say I don't know. And it's not something I can't go figure out or, or you know, place a quick phone call or text message into some buddies or trainers that might know an answer better than me. But for whatever that's worth, if you think that might be of some value to you, then by all means, check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash gundog yourself. With that all being said, again, hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks as always for hitting download and play. If you don't mind, share it with a friend and uh, we'll be back here soon in another few days with another episode of GDIY. Thanks guys. Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high grade lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup, just have to replace it again in a year go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want if you're considering changing your dog's food soon then be sure to check out yukanuba pro performance their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance they also now have the new puppy formula to help your pups start strong and live active when looking at all the different food options remember yukanuba to help power their ultimate performance Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Duck's Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.